I might have told uh, this, this one before, but my grandfather was a minister, and uh, he used to say that when the visiting preacher would come and take his watch off and lay it on the pulpit, there were two little boys that sat in the front pew. And one of the boys leaned over to the other one and said, Buddy, do you know what it means when the preacher lays his watch up there? And he said, No, I don't. What it means is it don't mean a thing. <laughs> but uh, we, we will try to adhere to a, a schedule. <laughs> well, this morning, I'd like to talk uh, here briefly in the, the, the time we have together. Our, our main text is going to be found in Matthew chapter 11. If you want to turn there, we'll talk about an interesting statement that our Lord made to us. And the, the, the title of this sermon is called The Yoke We Wear. For those of you who, who might not be aware of it or, or aren't familiar, a yoke is an uh, object that is probably not in common use today unless you're involved in animal agriculture. A, 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 I'm sure an, an Amishman would know exactly what we were talking about, but a yoke was placed on the neck of a, uh, typically an, an ox, a large a bovine who was going to pull a load. He had to be yoked to the load. You know, we're told about being unequally yoked. Uh, there's a lot of interesting applications of, of that in the scripture because of the, the culture it would have been very familiar to those people. Christ tells us here that we're going to wear a yoke. The Bible tells us we're going to wear a yoke. And I think we can probably see it and understand it in the world in which we live. I want to read for, to, to start. I'm going to read this passage from verse 16 of chapter 11 to the end. See what Jesus is saying. He is... He is answering and he, he's speaking to his people. He's speaking to his generation in the time in which he lived. And he says here, uh, starting at verse 16, Whereunto shall I liken this generation? What are these people like? It is like unto children sitting in the market and calling unto their fellows, saying, We have piped unto you and ye have not danced. We have mourned unto you and ye have not lamented. For John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say he hath a devil. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, Behold, a man gluttonous and a wine-bibber, a friend of publicans and sinners. But wisdom is justified of her children. Then began he to upbraid the cities wherein most of his mighty works were done, because they repented not. Woe unto thee, Chorazin! Woe unto thee, Bethsaida! For if the mighty works which were done in you had been done in Tyre and Zidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I say unto you, it shall be more tolerable for Tyre and Zidon at the day of judgment than for you. And thou, Capernaum, which art exalted unto heaven, shall be brought down to hell. For if the mighty works which had been done in thee had been done in Sodom, it would have remained unto this day. But I say unto you that it shall be more tolerable for the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than for thee. At that time Jesus answered and said, I thank thee, O Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because thou hast hidden these things from the wise and prudent, and hast revealed them unto babes. Even so, Father, for so it seemed good in thy sight. All things are delivered unto me of my Father, and no man knoweth the Son but the Father, Neither knoweth any man the Father save the Son, and he to whomsoever the Son will reveal him. Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and ye shall find rest unto your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. There's a lot things for us to think about in these verses and to apply to the age that we're living in. Jesus is saying, starting in that 16th verse, he is condemning and in, he's almost mocking the childishness of the, the religious leaders as well as the mass of the people. They are looking at, they are hearing the words of the Son of God. They're watching his ministry. They're seeing these things. 
And he's asking himself, he's saying to himself, what are these people like? And he uses the illustration of children's games. It's like they're playing children's games. And what is being said, just just briefly, what he's describing here, apparently this may have been something that was common in uh, his day, and it's, it's common in our day to a sense. Children emulate what they see. And in the cities, they would sit in the markets, call to the other children, and they might say, well, let's, let's play like that. we're going to have a party, we're going to be happy, we're going, maybe there's a wedding going on. So they're going to pipe and sing and dance and, and play music. And they're expecting the other children to join in with them, let's do this. They say, well, no, we don't want to do that. Well, then let's, we, we've seen funerals. Let's mourn. Let's, let's be like a funeral procession. We'll play that game. And they won't do that either. What he's using the, the illustration, obviously, between himself and John the Baptist is that God has used every means to call people to hear my message. I have a message and I want you to hear it. Now, let, let's think about the, what's, what's behind, what is he saying? What's behind these words? There has been a, a piping, a joyful sound given of the Messiah has come. Salvation is here. It's full and free. This is what you've been waiting for. The hope of Israel is here. John has been given a, a, given a mournful sound. The sinners are going to be doomed. Except ye repent, ye shall perish. Both of those calls have been given out. And that's, that's what the entire message of Christianity is giving us. There is a doom of sinners. It's mournful. It's frightening. It's serious. And the churches to today, are they sending out that message? Are they mourning at all? But there's also a joyful message. There's a, there's a, a wonderful, happy message. Christ has come. Salvation is full and free. It's here. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. And both of those messages were going out in this time, Christ said, these messages have gone out. You have heard. We can read or we can hear the message of John the Baptist back in Matthew chapter 3, verses 1 through 12. We can hear the, the harsh, the, the serious, the, the hammer that John was using. I want to read a few of these verses. Uh, this is found in Matthew 3. In those days came John the Baptist preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Here's a, a rough man. He was a hard man. Man, they said his, his food was locust and wild honey. He wore a garment of camel's hair. He was not an easy preacher. He would not fit too well in modern day Osteen style churches. <laughs> and he was saying, repent ye for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. This is he that was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah saying, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare ye the way of the Lord, make his path straight. This same John had his raiment of camel's hair, a leather girdle about his loins, and his meat was locust and wild honey. Then went out to him Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region round about Jordan were baptized of him in Jordan, confessing their sins. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees come to his baptism, he said unto them, O generation of vipers, who hath warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bring forth therefore fruits, meet for repentance. Think not to say within yourselves, we have Abraham to our father. For I say unto you that God is able of these stones to raise up children unto Abraham. And now also the axe is laid unto the root of the trees. Therefore every tree which bringeth not forth good fruit is hewn down and cast into the fire. I indeed baptize you with water unto repentance, but he that cometh after me is mightier than I, whose shoes I am not worthy to bear. He shall baptize you with the Holy Ghost and with fire. His fan is in his hand. He will thoroughly purge his floor and gather his wheat into the garner, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. 
John was a, what they used to call a hellfire and brimstone preacher. Amen. That was his message. He was mourning. Who, who has warned you to flee from this wrath? Who has even told you about what's coming? And Christ, Christ Jesus, when he came, he was, he was gentle. He was kindly. He drew vast crowds initially. Over in the Gospel of Luke, uh, chapter 4, verse 15, uh, beginning in verse 15, we can see him as he begins to preach and to teach in the, in the synagogue in his own hometown, among his own people. Uh, verse 15 says, he taught in their synagogues being glorified of all. And I'm going to skip down here to verse 17. There was delivered unto him the book of the prophet Isaiah. And when he had opened the book, he found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he hath anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to preach deliverance to the captives, recovering of sight to the blind, and set at liberty them that are bruised, to preach the acceptable year of the Lord. And he stopped there. Now that verse, if you want to look it up in Isaiah, a verse goes on, talks about the day of vengeance of our God. That's not what Jesus was there to talk about. He was, he was kindly reaching out, and I'm come to offer forgiveness. This is your chance. This is what you've been looking for. And it tells us in verse 22, all bear him witness and wondered at the gracious words which proceeded out of his mouth. And they said, is not this Joseph's son? They were rather shocked at what they heard. And if you read on down a little bit further, it wasn't long before they became enraged with Christ. But nonetheless, his message was a message of grace, forgiveness, joy, and happiness. And what was said, let's go back to Matthew uh, chapter 11. What was being said about them? What, what does Jesus mean by this? So, well, you, you've called John a crazy man. He, he's that crazy, radical, fundamentalist nut out in the wilderness under the power of his overactive imagination. That's what the people were saying to John. And we say, oh, well, Jesus... Jesus, this is a man that's just prone to luxury and the things of the flesh. He's a, he's, a, he's a light person. We don't want to hear his message either. That's what he's saying here. That this is what our people were doing. And this is what our people are doing right now today. It's not, it's not the tone of the message or the style of the message or even the style of the preacher, of all of these other things that have become such a fixation in modern America. That's not what people like or don't like. It's the message. If the message is true and accurate, that's what they don't like. And both John the Baptist and Jesus' message were the word of God. And that's what the people didn't like. All of this, these other things, these were, these were excuses. John's mourning had no effect on apostates. And I want to prove that later in the Gospel of Matthew, after John had been killed. John the Baptist was martyred for telling the truth because they wouldn't have the truth. In, in Matthew chapter 21... Is an interesting, interesting exchange that just shows the depth of the disbelief and the, the willful disbelief of the religious leaders. And I want you to see it. I hope you'll see that it's the same thing we're dealing with today when we open our Bible and show what does the Scripture say. When, that's, when that message is rejected, it's not, well, I need to go back and I need to change my tone. Or I need to, well, I need to leave this part out. I need to re-engineer. The reason it's rejected is because they won't hear and they won't have it. That's blatantly displayed for us in Matthew 21. Go to verse 23, if you would. When he, that is Jesus, was coming to the temple, the chief priests and the elders of the people came unto him 
as he was teaching and said, By what authority doest thou these things? And who gave thee this authority? Now they want to know, what gives you the right to even be here? But Jesus answered and said unto them, I also will ask you one thing, which if you tell me, I and likewise will tell you by what authority I do these things. The baptism of John, whence was it? From heaven or of men? He asked them a simple question. Was John's message from heaven? Was John's baptism, was he sent by God? Or was he doing this of his own accord or out of some human authority? And they reasoned with themselves. I, I got a picture in my head, maybe there was a 10 or 12, I don't know how many there were. But they went in a little circle and said, He's trapped us again. And they reasoned, they reasoned very well. How, what did they reason? If we shall say from heaven, he will say unto us, well, why then did you not believe him? If you knew it was from heaven and you say you didn't believe him, whose fault is it? But if we shall say of men, we fear the people, for all hold John as a prophet. So they're scared of popular disapproval. Or they're scared of getting trapped in their own words. So what did they do? They lied. Verse 27, they answered Jesus and said, we cannot tell. I believe, yeah, they, they could tell. They don't want to tell. They were suppressing the truth in unrighteousness. That's what's going on in the world all around us today. The, the people don't not understand the message of the Bible. They reject it and it makes them angry. And Jesus said unto them, neither tell I you by what authority I do these things. Because they won't have it. And our Lord knew that. He knew they wouldn't have it. In the, the illustration back in Matthew 11... As just as John's mourning had no effect on apostasy and disbelief, Christ's rejoicing had no effect on apostasy and disbelief. Isaiah 53, as quoted in, in Romans chapter 10, Lord, who hath believed our report? We, we, we've given the report, I've given the message, and who has believed it? Man is completely blind and willfully blind. He wants to be blind to things of the Spirit unless the Spirit of God opens his eyes and makes him see. The greatest, the most striking example of that is in the Scripture, the Apostle Paul. When he was Saul, the Pharisee, he was one of the worst of the worst. He was driven like a madman to persecute Christians. He wasn't going to listen to anything he was driven even beyond the other Pharisees. He wanted to go to other states, other provinces to persecute Christians. It took the Spirit of God to get a hold of him. And although our, our conversion, if God, God's got to get a hold of us, every one of us. God ha had to in the past or has to now or will have to in the future. God's got to get a hold of people to bring them to see the truth. And that is the, one of the, the most epic failures of the modern Christian movement. This attempt to entertain people into the kingdom of God. It doesn't work. It can't work. And it's unbiblical. We can't do it. Now, the 19th verse in, in Matthew 11 has an interesting little phrase there, wisdom, it's justified of her children. We know Jesus Christ is the wisdom of God. All the fullness of God, all the, the, all the wisdom of God is contained in the Son, Jesus Christ. The gospel is wisdom. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Do you want to be wise? That's where you start. To believe God is wise to disbelieve God reveals the absolute depth of the foolishness of man. The problem is we, 
we live in time. And we don't always see that at the beginning. When our people began to doubt and to disbelieve God, really seriously, in the 18th and 19th century, and the, 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 the problem was accelerated with our greater technological and scientific discoveries, that we don't need God, look what we can do. We, we, we got a steam engine, what do we need God for? Well, now, I got a, now I got a fuel burning engine, I really don't need God now. Now I got a computer, I don't even believe God exists. You can watch the, 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 the degeneracy of our people almost running in lockstep with our technical advancements. Because we got really, really over impressed with our own abilities. And rejected that the fear of the Lord was the beginning of wisdom. We, we no longer believe that to disbelieve God was the depth of foolishness. And Christ says wisdom is justified of her children. Well, let me ask you a question. We live in a society now where government officials don't seem to be able to tell the difference between men and women. Now, is there anything wise in that at all? We live in a society nowadays where people cannot seem to understand even the, the, the old scientific principles. How are you going to move 80,000 pounds over the passes of the Rocky Mountains in January with an electric motor? They can't explain. They don't have an answer. They can't even... We've regressed to the point we're not even understanding the basic physical principles of the world because we rejected God. That's, that's where our society has fallen into now because of this. And let us be like children, not in foolish behavior, not in silly behavior, but let us be, as, as we heard earlier, let us be like children and let, let's believe God. Let's have the fear of God, the fear of the Lord that's the beginning of wisdom. If you want to be wise, become like a child, believe God, and proceed from that point. But then Christ shifts somewhat in verse 20. He shifts in his... You can almost picture him shifting in his, his tone, his demeanor. He began to upbraid the cities wherein most of his mighty works were done because they repented not. And that's an interesting word to upbraid. That word, uh, the definition of that word is to charge with wrongdoing or to put a, put a reproach on, to, to criticize. He was severely criticizing these places where he had come and brought this wonderful message, these, these places where these works were done. Now, again, let, let's Think about our day and time. Now, we haven't physically experienced the presence of Christ. I hope we've spiritually experienced it. But think about the mighty works of God, the blessings of God that were poured on this place in our country, even back in our homelands. The, all these blessings that were poured out on us. Think about the, the, the blessings that were poured out on, these, on, on our people. Nowadays, that is actively hated and despised. If it's even thought of at all. This is discipline. Christ was pronouncing there's going to be some discipline coming on these cities. And there's discipline coming on the cities of our homelands. It's already here. And it's the same principles at work. Because the, the, the mighty works that God has done in the European homelands and in the, in, in, on this continent and the other places where he sent his people. And look how we've treated him. The result of this discipline ought to be repentance. And so far, I'm not seeing much of that. In society. Maybe it'll come, but I'm not seeing much of that. The blessings of God, though, ought to make us humble. And too often it has the effect of making us arrogant. And that always brings this type of discipline. These, these cities are interesting. I just let me touch on them for a minute. Uh, Chorazin and Bethsaida. These two places, Chorazin was apparently situated on the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee. 
Bethsaida was on the west side of the Sea of Galilee, and Jesus traveled uh, very often, as we can see examples in the Gospels of him being on the ships with uh, his, his apostles. Apparently they passed between these two settlements. Uh, these were highly regarded. They were considered um, pretty well-established places, or rather prosperous little places. Not long after the days of Christ, both of them faded into near obscurity. They're archaeological digs now. But he pronounced this woe, and I want, to look, I want you to look and to think about how serious what he says here. Um, the city of Bethsaida itself, at least three of his apostles came from there. But that was apparently their hometown. I mean, this was a very, Christ was very, very active in these places. And yet they do, or they're not believing and not repenting. What does that say about us and our people and the, the activity of the Spirit of God that's been among us? Tyre and Zidon ought to be familiar to, to you. Wicked cities. Those cities almost were like the, almost synonymous with evil places. Tyre was a mighty commercial empire. That was a, uh, at one point it ruled the Mediterranean in the days before the Babylonian Empire. That, that Ezekiel devoted three chapters to it. Babylon finally brought it down because God said, I, I'm not going to have this anymore. That this, how this filth and this uncleanness has spread through that place. Uh, Zidon was a sister city of Tyre on the coast of uh, Judea, the, the, what, the modern day Holy Land. It was, it was close to... Um, Ancient Tyre. They were, they were considered very, very wicked places. God's, I believe what we're seeing here in these verses is God's sovereign election being contrasted with man's wicked resistance to his call. And what do I mean by that? Well, think about the book of Jonah. Think about the book of Jonah. God's, that is a unique book, and it's an interesting book. God sent Jonah, God sent an Israelite preacher to go to preach to Nineveh. He told him to go tell the Assyrians to repent. Now, now, now think about this. God wanted, they're, they're his creation. They're not Israelites. They're not, a, they're not an Abrahamic people. God, I want them to repent. I want this sin to stop or I'm going to judge them. And I think Jonah's there to show the, that illustration that Nineveh repented. That doesn't mean that, well, oh, well, they're all God's people now. I don't know how God's going to deal with, with Ninevites and Assyrians. That's God's business. But they repent. They stopped doing the offensive sins they were engaging in. What, hap what has happened then to our people? We don't stop doing the offensive sins. We, we, we're, no, we're going to do it. We're hard. We're hard as diamonds. We're not going to do it. But the, 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 that contrast between the sovereign election of God and the wicked resistance of man. I, let me read you a passage of what God says about us. Let's, let's go to the prophet Ezekiel briefly. Just briefly, let's turn to the prophet Ezekiel. Chapter 3. God's given Ezekiel his commission. And what does he say about us? Verses 4 to 7. He said to me, Son of man, go get thee unto the house of Israel. Speak with my words unto them. For thou art not sent to a people of a strange speech and of a hard language, but to the house of Israel. Not to many people of a strange speech and of a hard language, whose words thou cannot understand. Surely had I sent thee to them, they would have hearkened unto thee. But the house of Israel will not hearken unto thee, for they will not hearken unto me. For all the house of Israel are impudent and hard-hearted. That word impudent is interesting. It means having a stiff forehead. Like your head is like a, a block of granite. It's not going to break. It won't penetrate. 
It says, Behold, I have made thy face strong against their faces, and thy forehead strong against their forehead. It's almost like the ministers of God, like you're, the old saying is like you're beating your head against a brick wall when you're trying to, to tell the message. Those of you that have tried to share the gospel message, perhaps with people you know, people you work with, maybe you know what I'm talking about. It's like beating your head against a brick wall. They get angry or they just tune you out. They will not hear. That's why the scripture tells us that the Lord's got to remove. That's why we have Jeremiah 31, 33, that I've got to remove that heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. God, is, what he is saying, what Christ Jesus is saying here is, if I had called that wicked, pagan, non-Israelite people, they would have repented. But you, what, a, what a condemnation that is on our people. That ought to bring us humility. Christ says, I say unto you, it will be more tolerable for Tyre and Zidon at the day of judgment than for Chorazin and Bethsaida. Sometimes those who we see as the worst of the worst might not be in the worst place. To hear and taste and see the goodness of God, then to despise and reject it. That's worse than never hearing it at all. Again, let your mind wander to our time, to our place, and to our people. Let's hear what God said on this subject in Psalm number 81, verses 10 through 12. What a tragedy these, these verses are. I am the Lord thy God, which brought thee out of the land of Egypt. Open thy mouth wide, and I will fill it. But my people would not hearken to my voice, and Israel would have none of me. So I gave them up unto their own heart's lust, and they walked in their own counsels. You don't know why we're in the shape we're in today? That's why. That's why. What about Capernaum? What does he say in verse 23? Thou Capernaum, which art exalted unto heaven. Why was it exalted unto heaven? That city was Christ's very consistent adult earthly residence. And it was the site of a lot of miracles and a lot of preaching happened in Capernaum. He plainly said about this here, that, that Capernaum haven't been exalted to heaven, it'll be thrown down to hell. And this next phrase, is ought to make us pause here. If the mighty works which had been done in thee had been done in Sodom, it would have remained. Sodom, the city of Sodom, the very word in our language to right now today from an ancient, ancient event has stood with us as almost being the definition of sin, filth, and vileness. They weren't called to repent. They were judged. Sodom is an example of what happens when God lets men go and lets them run in their own lust as long as they want, as far as they want. And I'm going to be honest with you. I wasn't there. None of us were. Again, it's an archaeological dig now, such as it is. But I don't know how much worse Sodom could have been than New York or San Francisco. I really don't. I don't know how much worse it could have been. God righteously announced the destruction of that vile place with, with no call for repentance. He's not obligated to call anyone to repent. But the question that we ought to be asking ourselves as he was telling the people here is how much worse is it to have received such great benefits that Capernaum received and to reject them? And again, I'll bring your eye, look at the apostasy of the Western world. I read an article the other day. Members of the British Parliament attempting to uh, alter funding for the Church of England 
because they don't have enough homosexual and transvestite ministers in the Church of England. I just, I just read that article a few days ago. The fact that there's one is bad enough, but they, they want more. And they're cutting off the money. Unless you, you get some more in there, we're going to cut the money off. I don't know how much longer God can allow this to ride. I, really, I, I, don't, I don't know. Christ said it will be more tolerable for the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than for thee. They had Jesus Christ physically present. We have his Bible. We have his word. We have ministers who still preach the truth. We have the sacraments. We have the Holy Spirit dwelling within us. Christ has blessed our people. Maybe even more than Chorazin and Bethsaida and Capernaum. What have we done? Where is our society? What have we done with it? What are, what are we doing with it? Our churches have been wrecked. Our state is wrecked. Most of our families are wrecked. We have to be thankful though. We have to be thankful to God for his sovereignty in all things. Jesus doeth all things well. Verse 25, it's almost like Christ shifted. At that time he answered and he started to pray. He said, I thank thee, O Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because thou hast hidden these things from the wise and prudent and hast revealed them unto babes. Christ said there's a remnant and there's still a chosen people. It's our job. There's an old saying, duty is ours, consequences are God's. It's our job to make sure that we're in that group. If we've been called, if you've heard, you've believed, it's your job to make sure you're in that group. It's your job to help your family. They need to be there. They need to be in, in, in that group. Paul says, <clears throat> the Apostle Paul told us over in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 19, 20, and 21. I think it ties to this verse well. It is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise. I will bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this world? Hath not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For after in the wisdom of God, the world by wisdom knew not God. It pleased God by the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. All of these things that, that the world thinks what we're doing, what we believe. Well, that's, that these people are foolish. This is crazy. God asks, where is their wisdom? What is it going to get them? It's going to get them the destruction of Sodom is what it's going to get them. We have the answer. He says, he is the Lord of heaven and earth. All power belongs to God. Not only in the heaven, but on the earth also. And it's very, very easy for us to lose sight of that when we can see the the horrors that are arrayed against us. Let's, let's, let's not sugarcoat it. The awfulness that stands, all the, the host of the devil, all his, his and his, his human and non-human associates. But all power belongs to God in heaven and earth, the Lord of heaven and earth. <clears throat> what has he hidden? He's hidden the things that belong to our peace and our salvation. The power and glory of the world, most of the time, not all of the time, there have been, there have been the occasional, just like there were in Judah, there's been mighty kings and there's been mighty men who were men of God. But it's very unusual. Most often the things, the things that are mighty in the world, the power and the glory, do not accompany the message of the gospel. 
it's hidden and it's revealed unto babes. It's revealed unto those that the world says are foolish. That's something we ought to, we ought to be able to take comfort in that. And verse 26 tells us, even so, Father, it, it is that way because it seemed good in thy sight. God is pleased and all is dependent upon the right judgment of God. We ought to take encouragement also where Christ says, all things are delivered unto me of my Father. It's all been put into his hand. The, the forces of evil, the forces of wickedness, no, no government, no uh, corporate power, nothing. No, even the, the, the devil himself can take one step beyond what our king, what our kinsman redeemer has a, says he can do. It's all in God's hands. He tells us that there's no approach unto God the Father except by that same kinsman redeemer, Christ the Son. And if we know Christ, if we have Christ, we have what we need. We just need to walk like, like it and live like it. That's what we have to do. We can see once again the absolute sovereignty of our God in salvation. Who, who has this? Who believes this? What does it say? He to whomsoever the Son will reveal him. If Christ the Son has revealed God to you, that fact alone ought to give you an encouragement and a, a renewed willingness. Lord, let me walk in the way in which you would have me to walk. Let me live, let me order my life in the way it should be ordered. Let me put aside the sin and the things that are dragging me back and pulling me back and let me walk in the path that you've laid out for me to walk. That's what we need to do. What is God's promise to us back in the great Sermon on the Mount. What did Christ say in Matthew chapter 7, verses 7 and 8? Ask and it shall be given you. Seek and ye shall find. Knock and it shall be opened unto you. Now you've got to do something. You've got to ask. You've got to seek. You've got to knock. Everyone that asketh receiveth, and he that seeketh findeth, and to him that knocketh it shall be opened. God will give us what we need. God will give us what we need to, go, to walk in this world, to walk in this society. And God will give us what we need to put aside the sins that beset us and walk in a way that pleases Him. And then finally we come to the great call that Jesus gave in these last three verses. Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden. Who... He, he is asking, who is conscious of the burden of sin? Are you conscious of it? Are you laboring under it? This is the constant call of God extending his hand to his people. Come to me and have relief, have release, have forgiveness. <clears throat> this call went out. This is not a, this should not have been an alien thing to them. Because the prophet Jeremiah, back in Jeremiah chapter 31, and this is a, a very emotional passage, I think. It ought to be for us, particularly of our, as, as Americans, perhaps those of us descended from, from the English people. But this applies to all of us. What does he say in Jeremiah 31, verse 18 to 20? What? What does God say through his prophet? I have surely heard Ephraim bemoaning himself thus. Thou hast chastised me and I was chastised as a bullock unaccustomed to the yoke. There's that yoke again. Turn thou me and I shall be turned for thou art the Lord my God. Surely after I was turned, I repented. That's the sovereignty of God. He had to be turned. Ephraim couldn't turn himself. None of us can turn ourselves. 
I repented, and after that I was instructed. I smote upon my thigh, I was ashamed, yea, even confounded, because I did bear the reproach of my youth. Is Ephraim my dear son? Is he a pleasant child? For since I spake against him, I do earnestly remember him still. Therefore my bowels are troubled for him. I will surely have mercy upon him, saith the Lord. God's hand is stretched out still in mercy. Christ is still saying, come unto me, all ye that labor. Come to Christ on his terms, though not ours. We don't get to set the terms. And we'll find rest there for our souls. We'll find assurance of salvation. We'll find that God's love and forgiveness. We'll find strength to walk in the way he wants us to walk. We'll find strength to lighten our minds to understand what's in his word. We'll find assurance that we've been delivered and that we can be delivered from the power and the practice of sin if we come to Christ. He tells us to take, take his yoke upon him. And there's that, that interesting word again, his yoke. What does it mean to take the yoke of Christ? He wants us to be under that yoke. Well, that's the yoke to be submitted to Christ. To be submitted to Christ and to the, the servants that he's called and placed to help to guide us. It's a, a yoke is an object of work. It's kind of alien to our ears today because most of us, perhaps none of us really work with draft animals anymore. But it's a yoke to work. It's to pull in the labor of Christ's kingdom to help each other along. You know how you train a draft horse? I don't know how they trained the first one, but I have watched some, uh, I have watched this procedure done and a lot of times they'll take the colt and they put him in the harness next to his mother. She does most of the training because if he gets out, if he starts bucking and getting out of line, she'll nip him or, or they'll do certain movements with their bodies to know you pull this way. We ought to be able to help each other like that Amen. as Christians, right? You, man, you pull. We, we, don't, don't pull to the right. We need to pull straight. Don't, don't, no, don't turn that way. We need to pull straight. Yeah. It's also, it's a yoke of fellowship Amen. with Christ. Our fellowship is with, with God, is with Christ and with each other. That's the yoke we're supposed to wear. <clears throat> to have rest for our souls. We have to learn of Christ and we have to grow to be more like Christ in our own life. And finally, and I know we're, we're just about out of time, but finally I want to share with you what the Apostle Paul, again in Corinthians, 2 Corinthians actually, <clears throat> chapter 4 and verse 17 I'm sorry, that's 1 Corinthians. Yes. <laughs> this is what we are... seem to have made a mistake here. I'm very sorry. Let me conclude. We're going to we're gonna have to leave that aside. Let me conclude by telling you this. The Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, this is why we have the Holy Spirit. He's with us in all of our afflictions in Christ if we've taken on His yoke. We don't want to be like a rebellious, ill-trained, ill-tempered draft animal unused to the yoke that's bucking and kicking and trying to destroy the, the harness. His burden is light. As opposed to what? As opposed to the burden of sin, the burden of guilt, the burden of the, that the world offers you. That, oh, man, that looks flashy. I want that. It's not. It's crushing. 
it's a sin dad and it will end and it will end in nothing but ruin and it's evil of the the devil's yoke it's just like in, in Jeremiah, when Jeremiah told, his, told Judah, wear this yoke. And he fashioned the yoke and he physically wore it to show them. And they took it from him and they broke it. And what did God tell him? He said, go back and make another one, but this time make it out of iron. Would you rather wear the easy and light yoke of Christ or the iron yoke of oppression that the world has to offer? The weight of the sin debt in this world has gotten to dwarf the already unpayable financial debt in this world. Yeah. Foolish men who take no heed to the phys physical, tangible burdens that they've created in the world are scoffing at the debt of sin that we've created in our world. We're all under a yoke. Everybody wears one. But Christ gives you the opportunity to take that one off and wear mine. And he says it's easy. And he has a light burden. Are we going to wear the heavy crushing yoke of the world, the flesh, and the devil? Or are we going to wear the light and easy yoke of Jesus Christ? Those are, those are, our, those are what we have presented to us. And I pray that we all will say, I, won't, I will wear the yoke of Christ. Let's bow our heads for prayer. Our gracious Savior, Lord, we thank thee. Father, for thy kindness, thy mercy towards us. Lord God, I pray that thou wilt make us all of a mind to follow thee, to follow thy word. Lord, let us put on the yoke of Christ, which he tells us is easy and light. And let us lay aside the sin of the world. Let us lay aside the way of the world, the desire to be like the world. And make us a, have a desire to be more like Jesus Christ every day. And so much the more as we see the day of his coming approaching. In his name we pray. Amen. 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 Thank you.